Hello and welcome to Fast Pass to the Past, the theme park history podcast in season three. Have you ever wondered the origin story behind your favorite attractions and theme parks? Well, you're in the right place. However, today, as is often the case, we're going to talk about things you've likely never heard of in a new take on our Lost Land series, where we discuss the lost records of Disney history. Hello, I'm your host, Austin Carroll. I'm a history nerd and a former Disneyland cast member. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. I've gotten so much positive feedback and just unbelievable support over the past few years. I'm so excited to bring you folks a whole new season of theme park history. I know times are really tough right now, and you may be working from home. So take a break from those endless Zoom video chats and stay seated as you take a mini vacation back to what might have been. So without further ado, let's head deep into the archives of what many consider the most beautiful Magic Kingdom-style park in the world, Disneyland Paris. Please keep your hands, arms, and Mickey ears inside the time machine at all times. Between the time that Michael Eisner signed a letter of intent with the Prime Minister of France in 1985 and the opening of what was then called Euro Disneyland in 1992, there was an explosive period of creativity among the Walt Disney Imagineering team. This blue sky period saw designs featuring everything from an entire land contained in a large Space Mountain-style building called Discovery Mountain to a futuristic steampunk castle design. Why the sudden creativity for a park that was simply intended to build on the tradition inspired by the original Disneyland in 1955, supersized at Magic Kingdom Park in 1971, and then polished at Tokyo Disneyland in 1983? It was because this time, the Imagineers were encouraged to think beyond the reused renderings and cloned attractions that they had implemented in the past three parks. As this was the Walt Disney Company's first park on the continent, a continent that, by the way, had a long tradition of regional amusement parks that even inspired Walt Disney himself. Management was committed to making Euro Disneyland a unique park, where even Disney's signature attractions like the Haunted Mansion and Space Mountain would be reimagined. So Disneyland Imagineers set to work, designing beautiful facades and wholly different attractions within the bounds of Frontierland, Adventureland, and Discoveryland, which was a rename Tomorrowland. And at the entrance to it all, as is true in all of the parks worldwide at the time, lay a beautiful and a bit contradictory given its Parisian address, Main Street USA. What does Main Street USA look like when it's only 20 minutes outside of Paris? a city with one of the world's most complex architectural histories. That responsibility fell to one man, Eddie Soto, a self-proclaimed Disneytologist who had only begun his dream job of Disney Imagineer for less than a year, set to work designing a very different Main Street USA than his beloved Anaheim theme park, and one that took place a good 30 years later. Instead of a turn-of-the-century Victorian facades that harken back to Walt Disney's Minnesota hometown, 
Eddie's Main Street would resemble something different, something exciting. In the place of horse-drawn carriages, he saw gangsters, policemen, and great American cities that flourished during the Jazz Age. Who was this man? Well, Eddie Soto was only 12 years old when he sent Disney a suggestion for rides on his very own Disneytologist leatherhead. Along with a photo of his very own scale model of Disneyland made out of business cards he had collected. In response, Disney sent him a cease and desist. However, that didn't stop Eddie from pursuing a career in theme park design. At the urging of his wife, who suggested he do something more productive with his hobby of creating models and storyboards of theme park attractions, Eddie began his design career in 1979 at Knott's Berry Farm. It's an experience he describes as design boot camp. The crowd-pleasing, but no longer with us, Soapbox Racer was his first project at the farm. After spending three years with Knott's, he then continued honing his skills at Landmark Entertainment, where he designed attractions for Six Flags and Universal theme parks. After three years, Eddie finally landed his dream role at Walt Disney Imagineering in 1986. He was in Baltimore at the time and had lunch with Bruce Gordon, who was Tony Baxter's number two man. He showed him a project he was working on that had images in it that were very Victorian, very 19th century. Tony liked what he saw and took a chance on Eddie, hiring him for the Disneyland Paris project as the youngest VP in Walt Disney Imagineering. That being said, Eddie moved all the way out to Southern California before he even knew what he would be designing. When the assignments for the park's different lands were being handed out, he thought he was going to get Discovery Land because of the submarines that he had shown them. However, Tim Delaney, oh, Walt Disney Imagineering veteran, got that, and Eddie was given the daunting task redesigning the Land of Legacy, the only land Walt Disney ever had a hand in designing, Main Street, USA. It goes down in Disney lore that Walt's plan for the original Disneyland Main Street was intended to present an idolized town at the turn of the 20th century. Although based on Walt's life as a young boy growing up in Marcine, Missouri in the early 1900s, Walt imagined that Main Street never really existed. But if guests were to conjure up their ideal town, it would be something like Main Street, USA. In the minds of many of Walt's trusted lieutenants, including many that were imaginary fixtures by the time Eddie joined, Main Street had a cachet that extended well beyond Walt's legacy. It was perhaps the most important part of the park, functioning like the opening scene of a movie, drawing guests into the show, with the promise that what was ahead beyond the quaint shops and themed restaurants, were areas threaded with adventure, romance, thrill, and fantasy. Since Disneyland's opening in 1955, every designer who had been tasked with creating a new Main Street for a new Disney park has had to live up to that first nostalgic thoroughfare, the only one Walt actually had a hand in designing, while also setting the scene for the rest of the park. Once given the assignment, the question facing Eddie was, do we change things up or do we stay with the tried and true formula? If that question wasn't challenging enough, 
the cold and wet, even snowy climate of Paris presented additional challenges to the eager young designer. He also needed to serve the expectations of the European clientele. Eddie imagined guests visiting Paris Opera House and other sites, and then finally ending up at Disneyland Paris, as he didn't really have the budgets of Victorian kings of yore, he couldn't really compete on ornamentation with the historic gilded Parisian marvels nearby. So he decided to create a main street that was uniquely American. As the Victorian buildings of Marcine, Missouri were just simplistic copies of their European brethren, Eddie envisioned a different main street, one that called to mind the gleaming Art Deco American cities of the 1920s. A million, million people are happy, bright, and gay. The bells are ringing in the steeple. It's a public holiday. Eddie's Main Street was inspired by the stories of the Roaring Twenties, and the jazz, cinema, art deco, and gangsters that populated the decade. Eddie was egged on in his ideas by the popularity of the film Once Upon a Time in America and the Europeans' continued interest in America's most tumultuous age. After all, what more do Europeans like than stories of America messing up? Eddie got to work designing a Main Street USA that would be home in a film about New York or Chicago. He envisioned gangsters' role in the land as parallel to the 1917 silent slapstick comedy series Keystone Cops, with fun instead of guns. He thought Walt was able to make piracy and cowboy outlaws fun, so he thought he could make a speakeasy fun too, without the violence. In fact, Eddie really meant what he said. In a Disney first on Main Street, he wanted to put in a real-life speakeasy. The speakeasy, called Capone's Jazz Club in other iterations, would have been on Flower Street with an orange awning. A police car would have always been parked outside the notorious club. The guests would enter a relatively innocent-looking flower shop, but a minute later, the walls would revolve to reveal a cotton club-style jazz hotspot. Later versions had the guests being ushered into a life-size portrait of Big Al before the walls began to move. Regardless, the interior would have been the same, with jazz blaring and cigarette girls roaming. Occasional police raids would end the show. Nearby, guests could sample Chicago deep-dish pizza from Al Capone's honest brother, while listening in on the Capone brothers' secret discussions with the police, tipping off locations of speakeasies and other operations on party-line-style phones. Next door to the speakeasy would have been a diner that looked like the famous Edward Hopper painting Nighthawks, instead of what stands there now, Walt's an American restaurant. The diner would have been a quintessential burger place, complete with a jukebox, stainless steel, cherry cokes, and shoestring fries, with a walk-up counter outside to augment the indoor counter and booths. Like the restaurants, each shop on this new Main Street would have reflected the personality of an immigrant to the United States. For instance, a small cafe would have been owned by a French immigrant, with photos of Paris and New York City on the walls of a humble coffee counter and seating. 
The French present continues with Claude's Neon, a custom neon sign shop where a glass blower creates neon art right in front of the guest. Following, of course, in the tradition of Neon's French inventor, Claude Neon. There would also be the standard stores, of course, with Disney merchandise and Hollywood props, including an Emporium-style store reflecting more of like a 1920s Macy's department store kind of theming. The major fixtures of this main street would to be an elevated train running along the facades on one side of the street. The L train station would have looked just like the one in the movie Hello, Dolly!, and was to be set on Town Square at a 45-degree angle. This allowed one block of Main Street to also be positioned that way as well. Beneath the station, there would have been merchandise and other vendors. Once a guest boarded this elevated train, they would look out to the windows to find a city of the future, as Victorians had imagined it. This was to be the fluid discovery land transition. Unfortunately, the posters in the hall of the arcade are now the last remnants of this idea. After reaching the station in front of Discoveryland, the guests would have took the train back towards Central Plaza in front of the castle, and also passing in front of a Julie's Verne-inspired diorama, similar to that Grand Canyon diorama at Disneyland, on the return trip, before exiting onto the upper floor of the Emporium store. Since they were dealing with Paris's dreary wet weather, Eddie hoped that the train would alleviate the desire of the senior Walt Disney Company leaders pushing for a main street with a roof, similar to that in Tokyo Disneyland. He thought L-Train would be more of a people-mover system with many cars. One of the purposes of the elevated train was to extend the entrance of Discoveryland to allow guests to circulate without getting wet. The tracks would have also provided a way for people to watch the parade, while being under shelter during the rain. Eventually, the issue of circulating crowds during the rain, and even snow that northern France is prone to, was solved with a backstage arcade corridor called the Discovery Arcade. Before the corridor was envisioned out of operational necessity, Eddie imagined that behind the town square east block of buildings, there would be a hidden private restaurant with an American-style streamlined locomotive train complete with dining cards, inspired by the famous 20th Century Limited. Guests would have entered the hidden railroad terminal via a door underneath the railroad station. It was similar in format to the Pacific Dining Car, one of the oldest restaurants in Los Angeles, having been built in 1921. The idea of private dining was pioneered with Club 33 at Disneyland, which opened in June 15, 1967, just six months after Walt's death. Eddie thought that the 20th Century Limited could continue Club 33's legacy with what would be one of the most unique private restaurants in Europe. He wanted to investigate projections outside the windows They would take guests across the U.S. as it looked in another time. To the left of the elevated train on the east side of Main Street would have been the entrance to a theatrical attraction, similar to the theater on Main Street in Disneyland. It would have been called the Buffalo Nickel Theater, a hill back to the early Nickelodeons of early cinema. Inside, a circular vision-type screen would have told the history of Hollywood, although Eddie says that it could have also been a live show. They had created a circular drive for the Main Street limousine to pull up in front of the theater, 
as that is where you would board it. Today, the limousine is the only thing left of that idea. The concept was scrapped pretty early on, as the guys upstairs wanted to build a studio as a second park, and the theater would duplicate the experience. However, it would be one name change in almost 10 years before the Walt Disney Studio Park would open its doors across the Esplanade from Disneyland Paris. At the front of Main Street, guests would encounter a service and gas station where the firehouse is currently located. Eddie put in a service station because in 1920s, the transition from horse-drawn streetcar to automobile had already been made, and the automobile had won. In the original illustrations, the station appears similar to Oswald's on Bruna Vista Street in California Adventure, and it's actually placed in relatively the same spot. During development, the plans evolved to make it less industrial and more Victorian, like the traditional Main Street, with columns even added to the facade. Herb Ryman and Eddie also discuss Walt's fascination with dollhouses and miniatures. To pay tribute to him, they envisioned an exhibit of sorts that would be between the transportation company and a hat shop. Inspired by a trip they both took to Covent Garden, London, where they saw an animated cabaret of handmade miniatures, they would create many animated scenes of Main Street. For example, the Main Street cinema would have had tiny figures of kids playing in the aisles, a couple making out in the back, and the projectionist embracing his mop imitating Valentino's famous screen kiss. Another Eddie, Eddie Johnson, was the art director on the project, and he came up with lots of fun ideas for those little animated scenes. In the 1920s version, Eddie also wanted to sprinkle the facades with giant advertising billboards and have cars motoring up and down Main Street to give some idea of the dynamic atmosphere in the United States at the time. These were the only two ideas that were saved for the final version that we see today. Interestingly, not even exact copies of Walt Disney World survived these design edits. The Crystal Palace restaurant from Walt Disney World was originally intended for the Main Street program in the hub. They had planned for a glowing crystal Steinway to rise up in the middle of the restaurant, similar to how the rock and roll brand used to rise out of the ground in Disneyland's Tomorrowland. It would have included the grand piano and could have been absolutely spectacular. However, the plan was scrapped in favor of the cheaper Plaza Inn from Disneyland, basically a replica. To preserve the idea, Eddie moved the Crystal Palace inspiration to the entrance sequence to create a 1976 Crystal Palace exposition. It would have been a giant glazed glass ticketing complex. However, the cost of building something so extravagant actually led them to subsidizing the covering of ticketing with the hotel that now greets Disneyland Paris visitors. The hotel was Eddie's idea the first in-park theme park hotel, a Disneyland feature that would later pop up in California Adventure and Tokyo Disney Sea. If the scrapping of the Crystal Palace, one of Walt Disney World's most beautiful architectural triumphs, was any indication, the 1920s facade of Main Street did not end up in our Lost Land series for creative reasons alone. Financial stipulations also played a significant role in the Disneyland Paris Main Street we ended up with today. Yet, we still have to question, 
What really happened? The answer is relatively simple. A year into the project, Eddie took a much-needed vacation, and while he sipped pina coladas on a beach, the project was scrapped. I know, right? Never take a vacation. In truth, the project had unearthed some creative challenges. The Imagineers wrestled with the 1920s design being overlaid onto the existing concept of Main Street as it existed in Disneyland, Disney World, and Tokyo. The existing designs had become ingrained in their collective consciousness. Eddie was brought on as an outside hire for this very reason, but as a child who had grown up going to Disneyland, he worried that the addition of the 1920s elements, even if they were perfect, would seem like a clash. They needed to massage the transitions between the Art Deco building and the Victorian 19th century buildings, even going back and simplifying the Victorian designs to make the gap less glaring. However, at the time of the project's fateful decision, they only really had a few loose sketches by Herb Ryman and a full-scale finished rendering of the project by Disney legend Colin Campbell, who had supplied much of Walt Disney World's Main Street concept art. However, Eddie really wasn't satisfied with the rendering. In his opinion, the design still looked conflicted. He felt the angle, composition, colors, even scale just felt wrong. However, it was taking a really long time for them to get finished renderings of the project, so they went ahead and used this particular view, even though it just wasn't working the way they'd hoped. And, of course, they never got the chance to fix it. Eddie's dream of a Roaring Twenties Main Street was over only a year after they began. Michael Eisner vetoed the plan. There are conflicting reports about the exact reason why. He could have disagreed with the creative, thinking it was too far off the main street that had been successful in America and Tokyo. Or, as the rumor goes, he may have recently seen the violent 1987 film The Untouchables, which was released around the same time, and that put him off the gangster fun version that Eddie had dreamed up. However, it likely came down to financials. The Disneyland Paris Park was incredibly expensive. In 2007, at the 25th anniversary of the park, Disney still had 1.9 euros of debt from the construction of the property. This is because of details like Sleeping Beauty's castle, whose stained glass is from the same London studio that helped restore Notre Dame's Gothic spires. It also comes from careless mistakes from operating and building in a new, unfamiliar climate. According to Eddie, the original moldings for Walt's restaurant were made of MDF, a press board material that's similar to IKEA furniture. Although inexpensive, it expands in rain and bursts apart. Despite this, they installed it before the door was added, so the space was open to the elements. Just a year later, much of that had to be replaced. Was the 1920s theme the right thing for Paris? In all honesty, and at least according to Eddie, it probably was. Eisner even admitted it to Eddie later, that a 1920s idea would have been better understood in Europe. However, by that point, it was just too late. 
Disneyland Paris opened up with a very similar Main Street USA layout to that found in every Disney park around the world. Despite housing very different lands of fantasy from their American brethren, including a Tomorrowland inspired by French Victorian sensibilities, the park, and especially Main Street USA, was berated by French audiences as a form of American imperialism. Eisner invited the press to explore his new park, to explore what he described as European folklore with a Kansas twist. But honestly, it wasn't until very recently that the park even reached profitability. The Main Street USA of Walt's youth did not speak to European audiences. But of course, Eddie knew that all along. What was the legacy of this brilliant idea of Main Street? Well, the Walt Disney Company remembered this lesson when they set out to design Shanghai Disneyland. Instead of copying and pasting what worked in Tokyo and Walt Disney World, they set about designing a park that was distinctly Chinese and appealed to their sensibilities. The Chinese visitors didn't want to see an American Victorian street. They wanted to see Mickey Mouse. Thus, Main Street was redesigned in Shanghai Disneyland as Mickey's Avenue. Yet, oh where, oh where did these wonderful 1920s designs end up? Well, as they say in Walt Disney Imagineering, a good idea never dies. When Eddie Soto moved on to managing the design of Tokyo Disneyland in Japan from 1994 to 1999, many of his Disneyland Paris concepts were being built by his colleagues just next door. When Tokyo Disney Sea opened in 2001 with a $4.5 billion budget, theme park fans were finally able to realize many facets of Eddie's vision. In American Harbor, guests are treated to an immersive 1920s New York. At the center of the land stands McDuck's department store, which harkens back to Eddie's idea of a Macy-style department store for the Emporium. Not only is the facade similar, the columns and circular counters seem to be pulled directly from the concept art of the scrapped Main Street 1920s plans. Eddie's theater is here too, although instead of hosting a homage to classic film, it hosts a live stage show which is a homage to Broadway, and it's oh so difficult to get tickets for. And of course, it's called Big Bang Beat. Although the signage has been given Japanese feel, the gray stone art circular molding is reminiscent of the original design as the Buffalo Nickel Theater. In American Harbor, the streetlights are gas, the signs neon, and there's even an outdoor market, similar to Eddie's original plans to have the old weather walkway this day named Market Street, open to food vendors selling their wares from carts. If that's not enough to convince you that Eddie's ideas live on in the parks to this day, simply look to the right and see Eddie's electric elevated railway in all of its glory. After being scrapped for monetary reasons all those years ago, in 2001, in Tokyo, not Paris, guests could finally ride on an elevated railway and peer out the windows onto 1920s New York streets before being left off in a version of the future at Port Discovery. This attraction is called the Tokyo Disney Sea Electric Railway 
and it's certainly worth a visit. It was not until long after Eddie left the Walt Disney Company that his ideas for a wacky gang of policemen and a true 1920s Main Street graced a Disney theme park. In 2012, after a renovation that cost the Walt Disney Company over $1 billion, Buena Vista Street was unveiled to the public just across the street from Eddie's beloved Disneyland in Disney's California Adventure. Although the designs have been updated since 1986, the major elements, the department store, the market, an elevated train, and actors playing hilarious policemen, and even the service station were still there after all this time. They say good ideas never die, and we're lucky enough to experience part of Eddie's visionary creativity when we head to California Adventure and Japan. I hope you enjoyed this look into the origins of a Main Street that would have been very different from the Main Street we experience today. I have really enjoyed going to Disneyland Paris. It's actually one of my favorite theme parks. So let me know if you want to hear more about the history of this kind of beautiful, gorgeous, and really unique Disney theme park. Thank you so much for your continued support of Fast Pass to the Past. I wouldn't be able to do this without you. Please email me at fastpasstothepast at gmail.com if you have show ideas, disagree with anything I said, or just want to say hi. I love that. You can also message me on Facebook if that's easier. And as always, I'd love to talk about you on the air. You can find the show notes at www.themeparkhistorypodcast.com. And if you'd be so kind, please leave an iTunes review if you enjoyed the podcast and want to learn more. Have a magical day! <laughs>